chapter 8. And if you need a Bible uh, to follow along with us, if you just lift up your hand, uh, the ushers will make their way through and drop a Bible off to you so you can follow along. And we are in chapter 8, picking up in verse 35. We'll study through the end of the chapter. Let's read the Word of God together. Paul writes and he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors. Through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The most powerful potion on planet earth is love. In the 1970s, John Lennon sang a song that resonated with an entire generation. He sang the words, all you need is love. Love is all you need. And that song resonated with an entire generation that had seen the vanity of materialism in their parents and threw all of that off to pursue this life of Seeking after love. Now, they never found it. And the reason we know that is because in the 1980s, Johnny Lee sang a song that you're looking for love in all the wrong places. (laughs) And both of them were right. John Lennon, all you need is love. And Johnny Lee, you're looking for love in all the wrong places. They were both right. But nevertheless... Well, he never found what he was looking for. Now, love, that powerful potion that it is, love has the power to do incredible things. Love has the power, as we learned on Sunday, to motivate. When every other motivation fails, and you think about the things that motivate people, people motivated by money, motivated by pride and power and prominence, motivated by possessions and things and and, and anything under the sun that can motivate someone. And yet there's no more powerful motivation for anybody to do anything than love. It's a powerful motivator. Love also has the power to maturate, to make someone mature or grow up. My father loves to tell the story of how he was a 13-year-old overweight antisocial. And then he went to his first boy-girl dance, and nobody talked to him. And man, it motivated him when he saw some girls that he noticed that he had never noticed before his 13th year. And when he saw them there, it motivated him to grow up, to put off some childish things, and to become an adult, so to speak. He was motivated by a desire, a longing for love. Love has the power to mystify. If you've ever seen a young couple in love or you've had a son or a daughter that is in that stage of their life when for the first time they've caught the affections of a member of the opposite sex. 
And they're mystified. You can't get through. They, they don't hear a word you say and everything out of their mouth. It just doesn't make sense. They're gone. <laughs> mystified. Power of love. And love has the power to satisfy. When you're really in love and you experience that love, nothing else matters. You could be going through the most catastrophic of, of circumstances in your life. Things can be falling down all around you, but it just for some reason doesn't matter. It's all okay. Because of the love that you're experiencing. But love, this powerful potion that it is, although it has all of those positive attributes and things that it does, love also has the power to frustrate greatly. When love is given, but yet not responded to or received, when love is given and yet it goes unnoticed, it can be very frustrating to the person who's seeking to express love. Great frustration can result. Love also has the power to greatly infuriate. When love is betrayed or broken, when it's abandoned or abused, it has the power to cause such rage to well up within us. Love can so quickly spill over into great rage, great infuriation. It has the power to do that. Love has the power to fracture, to damage the heart, and debilitate one's ability to love and to be loved. And love also has the ability to well up within us great fears. All fear stems from uh, the potential of loss, the potential to lose something. Any fear that you have is because of, of something that you don't want to lose, a fear of losing it. And when you love someone or something then there can oftentimes be a fear associated with losing that or having the potential loss of it. Inside the heart of every man, woman, and child, there is an indescribable and undefinable longing that over the course of a life turns into a vacuum, a seemingly insatiable desire that gnaws at the minds and the emotions of men. Everybody on the planet is searching for something, grabbing after something. It's like something long ago was lost and there's something within the heart and the will and the emotions of every person that's seeking to try to find it, to fill and satisfy the thing that's missing. There's an ever-glowing check engine light within us. A subtle and yet strong indication that there's something that's not right. There's something missing. Something's wrong. And the response of all men to this insatiable longing, this constant check engine light, if you would, is that man seeks to fill that vacuum, to plug that void with anything that they can. They'll seek to fill it with pleasures. They'll seek to fill it by satisfying fleshly lusts. They'll seek to fill it by attaining power and authority. People feed on that as a well to try to satisfy that longing within them. They try to feed it with pursuits of accomplishment. Things that they can put their name upon and look at and store as trophies and look at and try to draw satisfaction from. People try to satisfy themselves by spending great sums of money and amassing great treasuries of things. People try to fill that void by traveling and going places and distracting themselves with amusements and leisures. In some way, seeking to quench this void, fill this vacuum, plug this hole that lies deep within them. Anything to try to make that feeling of emptiness just go away. To make that gnawing emotional draw stop. 
And yet for all of it, no matter what it is that man tries to plug that hole with, the vacuum continues. It just gets stronger. It just grows deeper the older you get. Now, why is it there? Where did that come from? Where did that desire, that deep longing within us originate? And why is it there? Well, there was a man once. There was one man, the only man to ever live that was born without such a vacuum as this. He had it. He had the vacuum. It was there inside of him, but alongside of it, there was also a well. There was a well that would spring up from within and from without. There was a constant source of satisfaction. He didn't even know that he had it. He was made, but he was perfectly complete. He was filled with the only substance that can silence and sustain such a powerful vacuum as that which we experience. The Bible tells us that he was made in the image of God. And that he existed in fellowship with God. He walked with God daily. There was an unbroken, constant fellowship and communion that this man had with Almighty and ever-living God. He was complete. He was whole. He was lacking nothing. He had no needs. He had no desires. He had no feeling that he was missing anything. He never sensed that he wanted something. There was never a desire to have something more than what he already had. He was completely full and completely satisfying. The well within him was capable of keeping him content with what he had. He was a perfectly satisfied man. Until one day he did something that would forever change that. He'd been warned that there was a single sinful substance that if it was introduced into his system, that it would permanently and irreparably corrupt his perfection. There was something that would destroy the well that was in him. That would pl- The plug, in a sense, would be pulled out from his soul. And ultimately, his heart would implode because he would lose the one thing, the only thing, that would keep him whole. That would keep him satisfied. And being seduced by the serpent, he succumbed to that temptation, and he became separated from the thing that he needed most. The perfect love of his Creator. The perfect, powerful potion of the love of God that he experienced to its fullness in its depths. The only thing that within him would keep him satisfied. The love of God, the most powerful force in the universe. Making nothing impossible to its possessors. The thing that fills all in all, that sustains, that strengthens, that endures all things. And thus, he partook of that fruit and the vacuum began. That emptiness began to well up within him. That longing, that need, that feeling that he was missing something, wanting something, needing something. And because he was the first man and his wife the first woman, that vacuum, that void, was passed on to their children. And their children's children, and their grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. And all the way to you and me today, and we are so very familiar with that void, aren't we? We're so very familiar with that thing within us that's just looking for something, searching for something, wanting to be filled. Tried by our grandparents to filled with materialism and it didn't work. Tried by the previous generation to be filled with selfish love, fleshly love, and it didn't work. 
And generation after generation goes and tries something new, tries something more that will fill and satisfy this void. And yet there's nothing that will. It started with Adam and Eve, passed from generation to generation, growing and expanding, becoming more desperate, more violent. But God, the creator of both the soul that was unsatisfied now, and also the well that would satisfy, that God had a plan. It's a plan that Paul has been sharing with us as we've gone through and read through the book of Romans and seen how God planned to save us. A plan wherein God made a way that we could be brought back into fellowship with Him. Again, filled with that ever-enduring, never-failing, forever-satisfying love of God. The deepest need that can ever be met has been met by God, who verse 32 there in Romans chapter 8 tells us that he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Who is he that condemns? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. This powerful gospel has brought us into the standing where we have been restored and been brought back into the loving favor of God. And we have the capacity again and the ability and the privilege of being filled and satisfied with his love. Well, you say, all right, Nick, that's a great introduction. And I I hear your point. I hear what you're saying. and And it makes sense to me theologically. I understand the point that you're making biblically. It's sound. You're right. It makes sense. We're following with you. We know what's going on here in Romans, and we understand the gospel. But you say, I've received Christ. I've come to Him. And I've really sincerely done it. It was a sincere conversion within my life, and yet I'm not experiencing what you're describing. You're talking about a a, a gospel, a God, a Savior that can so satisfy this longing within me that that I'm just a satisfied person like you described of Adam in the beginning. And, And although I've tasted, and although he's real, I confess what you're saying, it, it isn't the same thing. What's the deal? What gives? Why aren't I experiencing this love of Christ that Paul's talking about here in our text and that Adam had when he walked with God in the Garden of Eden? Well, the answer, very simply and quite frankly, for most people, is because although the love of Christ is freely given, it's freely offered, freely extended, totally available to all that are willing, it must also be received and embraced by those that will be partakers of it. If you want to experience the love of Christ, you also have to receive it. You have to embrace it. And here's the catch. You cannot experience or receive love without also embracing the risk of losing it. And that is why many people never taste and experience the fullness of the love of God. You say, what do you mean? Let me explain. Scenario number one. A child is born. They come into the world. He's the firstborn of a young couple's fresh marriage. And he's birthed into this world and he's nurtured and cared for with this perfect love of his parents. 100% of their attention and their affection is showered upon this child. He's sheltered or she is sheltered and nurtured by their love, carefully cared for. 
kept perfect. I mean, I remember when Hosanna was, was born. If someone so much as uttered a curse word in the same room, in the same hallway, in the same square mile as my daughter Hosanna, the rage that that love would well up within me as I heard that word, oh, it's going into her ears, even though one week old, two weeks old, But that child is naturally surrendered to and given to the love of their parents. They have an absolute trust. What else would they do? They're just a baby. An absolute trust. An absolute surrender and faith in the love that their parents are showing them. But the child begins to grow. And it isn't long before the second child comes. And when the second child comes, it's logical that the volume of attention and affection that that child once experienced is now split in half. Because now there's two. It isn't that the parents have any less of an esteem or a love for that child, but hey, a gallon of water is a gallon of water. And when you have a gallon of water to give to one, and then a gallon of water to give to two, guess what? So something that was previously perfectly satisfied within the heart of that child, something that they were experiencing in its fullness, is now cut in half, and suddenly imperceptibly to that child and even to the parents, something inside of them begins to suffocate. It begins to wane a little bit, that feeling of absolute attention as this second newborn is now introduced into the family. Well, time goes on and the demands of life and the taxation of energy is placed upon that family in even greater measure. And pretty soon that child begins to wonder about the the quality of the love that they really would experience from their, their, their parents. A father who was once infatuated by just looking into the face of his little baby daughter. Now he can't seem to find the time to even glance in her direction or hear the words that she's saying or look at the picture that she drew. The, the, the responsibilities and the burdens of life have just become too great. And for the first time, that child is discovering, though they can't define it with words, That the love that they trusted and and longed for so absolutely from their parents, that it's imperfect. It's not a perfect love. Their parents, as much as they're willing, don't have the ability to satisfy the deepest longing, the deepest need that they have within them. And so something begins to happen in that perfectly normal life. Is that a small shield begins to form over the heart. Is that, whoa, if I absolutely allow love to come in, then I absolutely better be ready to be shattered by it. And so I better begin to build a defense because there's nothing worse than the shattering pain of lost love. And so the child learns. She discovers this. But then, but then she turns 16. And there's this really cute guy. And he's different than all the rest. And he really is paying attention to me. And he really is, he's given, he seems to really genuinely be interested in me. This one loves me. And she begins to let that guard down at the ripe, mature age of 16. But that doesn't work out. And she finds out that his motives were mixed. That apparently she wasn't the only one that he liked to look at. And that there were other things going on within his motivations and his will. And she, again, feels that that love is imperfect, that that this thing that I was so satisfied by, so longing to experience, it's breaking down, it's not working out. And as friendships 
flower and then fade as time goes by. As relationships start off sweet, but then over time they go sour more and more. The hope that love really exists begins to fade, but the hunger doesn't. The need for it doesn't. And so there begins to be this chasm, this vacuum that wells up within. Scenario number one, completely normal person. Well, how about scenario number two, an eight-year-old boy who's raised and nurtured by his parents, naturally, again, surrendered to their love, absolute trust, absolute faith. But things for the family turn tragically south. And through the course of events, that young boy ends up in foster care, not because of some tragic accident, but because of just outright abandonment. He's placed into the care of foster parents. He's bounced from family to family, uprooted and replanted. The love that his parents promised him, even without words, has been ripped out of him. And the only security that he had, the only stability, has been taken away, stripped away. And the scars that form in the heart because of something like that that can happen in a life, harden like rocks. And a shield is built Upon the soul. And a natural defense is born. That internally, maybe even subconsciously, the person says, I will never let love in again. I will never allow anybody to love me again. Because I don't think I can endure the pain of losing it. And it doesn't matter whether it's the 8 year old boy in our story. Or the 18 year old girl who entrusted her heart into the hand of a man who she thought would love her. Or the 38 year old spouse whose husband just up and left her years and years after she stopped thinking that that was ever a possibility. Long ago, she left off fearing that there would ever be a broken relationship. And the wounds of lost love hurt. We've all experienced it. To some degree or another, we know that feeling of letting ourselves in to a feeling of perfect love and yet being abandoned by it. And we learn how to guard ourselves, don't we? We learn how to guard ourselves. Thus, we can only experience love in proportion to our vulnerability. How much are we willing to be hurt by it? And the only human defense against the wounds of love loss is to not let love in in the first place. Now, here's the good news. See, I've just painted a grim picture. I've probably put you in a really bad mood. But here's the good news. And this is the best news you'll ever hear is that what Paul is telling us in our text, what the great Apostle Paul is laying before us, this grand biblical truth that's being extracted and brought out before us here, is that you can embrace this perfect love of Christ. That nothing will ever separate us from the love of Christ. That we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. That nothing, height, depth, principalities, powers, things present, things to come, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God. It's a love that can be embraced. It's a love that can be received. And you can believe that this love is as good as it claims. That the one who invented the soul and then invented the love that satisfies it, that his love is constant and unconditional and he'll never turn his back on you. That he'll never walk away and say, it was just more than what I bargained for when I promised my love to you. It's too much for me to handle to give you the affection and attention that you need and desire. It's too great of a need that you have for me to be able to satisfy and calm all the fears that you have. 
It's as good as it gets. That's what Paul says. Now, we say, yes, I see it, I agree, but there's still something within me that resists. Nick, things happen. There are things that happen over the course of a life that, that, that even these things can still happen to me. I can still get sick. Where is God then? I, I can still have feelings of abandonment. Where is God then? There are still Christian good people that go through great depths of tribulation. Where is God then? How does all this buffer out? How does it work? If he loves me, then why do these things happen? Well, Paul here in our text gives to us seven things, seven situations, seven circumstances that cry out, that scream in your ear and say, you've been abandoned. He's turned his back on you. He doesn't love you anymore. You're not free. You're punished. And these things reverberate and echo within us as natural circumstances of life. He tells us there in verse 37, seven things, potential love slayers, if you would, that scream out that God has abandoned us. And then Paul holds them up and he compares them with the love of Christ. And then he asks the questions, can any of these things stop the power of God's unfailing love? The seven, the first there in verse 37 or, uh, yeah, I'm sorry, verse 35, he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? The first, tribulation. What's tribulation? Trials, difficulty, suffering circumstances. We all know what tribulation is. I don't really need to even define it. I could tell you what the Greek word means and we could go into all kinds of pictures, but I just say, describe tribulation. And you go, ha, look at my life. (laughs) Tribulation, I know what tribulation is. Paul says, can that separate us? Number two, distress. You see the word stress in there? That's what it means. Distress. We all know what that means. The squeeze. You ever felt like that? I have, where it feels like someone's taking a big, thick rope. And they're starting at your feet, and they're just slowly winding it up. And it's getting higher and higher, and then it's to your knees. You're like, all right, I'm still good. I can still breathe. I'm still standing. And then they get up to your waist. You go, okay, it's starting to hurt, a little uncomfortable, but I'm alive. And then they keep going, and now it's up to your waist. Okay, it's getting uncomfortable. I feel like a mermaid. You know, and then they keep going, and they're they're wrapping you up. And all of a sudden, now it's starting to squeeze the life out of you. You ever feel that? And you're like, okay, trying to breathe, situation's souring, things are going south quick, you know, and then they keep going. And after a while, it's like it's right up on your neck, and the thing is just going around, and you're going, this is it, I'm going to get buried in this. How could this ever even get unraveled? I can't even count the times it's wrapped around me. I'm so neck deep in this. Paul says, well, distress, that squeeze, will that separate us from the love of Christ? Number three, persecution. Persecution is rejection. It's opposition that we face, particularly as Christians, because of the profession that we've made in Christ. Will it separate us from the love of Christ? Famine means poverty, hunger, to be in need. We live in an economy and in a time when it's almost a given that in some respect we're all experiencing famine. Everybody feels the effects of it, some more than others. Will it separate us from the love of Christ? Number five is nakedness. Vulnerability, shame it speaks of scripturally, reproach, being exposed, embarrassed in some way, a great fear that many of us have. I know, I, I, I pray all the time, Lord, please cover me, cover me, hide me like it says in Psalm 91 under the shadow of your wings. I hate being embarrassed, it's my worst thing. 
as I stand up here stuttering like a moron. (laughs) (laughs) Number six, peril. It means danger. It means imminent doom. It means potential destruction. Will it separate us from the love of Christ? And then finally, the sword. It simply means death. Well, death? I mean, well, isn't that the worst thing that can... Actually, no, death isn't the worst thing that can happen to you. (laughs) But will it separate us from the love of Christ? Well, I read those things, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. You say, Nick, that sounds like life. It is life. But listen, people spend their whole lives, their time, their energy, their resources, trying to avoid these things. This is like the do not go there list of life. We don't want any of these things to happen. This is what we pray that God will keep from us. And yet Paul takes all of these very real circumstances, these very things that are to be feared because of what they produce and they do, and he pits them against the love of Christ. He says, let's look at them in lieu of his love, and let's see which one's stronger. Let's see which one wins. To have these things in your life, and to have the love of Christ in your life, and to put them together, and what comes out on top? What wins? And Paul's conclusion, of course, is that there's no match. He says in verse 37 that we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. We're more than conquerors. That it isn't even a close match. It doesn't come down to the decision at the end. That it's a knockout in the first round. That the love of Christ wins every time. Well, well, what does that mean that we're more than conquerors? What does he mean by that? And and why do we have to go through these things then if it's just that we're going to conquer? Why not just avoid them altogether? And here's the answer. Here's where he's going. Is that because each of these things that he's listed here, each of these fearful seven things that we avoid like the plague, each of them produce something in us. Listen, listen. Each of these things produce something within us that accentuates and amplifies the love of Christ in our lives. These things produce something that is profitable to us. You say, what does tribulation possibly produce in my life that I wouldn't have if I didn't have the tribulation? Well, from Genesis to Revelation, you go through and you look at those that went through tribulation, and the answer is singular. It produces the same thing every time. It produces revelation of who God is. It was the greatest trial of his life. He had walked with God for some 50 years. He had seen great victories and great growth within his own heart and soul as God shaped and made this man and gave him his promises and fulfilled it. But one day God came to him and he said, I want you to take your son, your only son, and I want you to offer him to me as a living, as a dying sacrifice upon the altar on the mountain. I'll show you. What? This is the fulfillment of everything I've been living for. It's my only son. It's the promise that you've given me and now you're telling me to... Do something unthinkable, unspeakable to kill him. And yet Abraham obeyed, knowing whom he believed in, knowing that God was either able to raise him from the dead or that God had some plan that Abraham could never figure out. And Abraham brought his son obediently up that hill. And in the time, the depths of his greatest tribulation, when his heart was literally breaking over what God was asking him to do and lay down in front of him, God intervened and said, stop. Now that I know that you won't withhold your only son from me, he says, this is what I'm going to do for you. And he says, look over there. And there was a ram caught in the thicket. And he said, offer the ram instead of the son. You know, and Abraham looked up and he said, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provides. 
And in the middle of his greatest tribulation, there was revelation. Something of God's character, something of God's nature, his essence, who he was, even in his name, was revealed to Abraham that day as he endured the tribulation. And the love of Christ made him more than a conqueror. As tribulation provided that revelation within his life. Moses was there. He had delivered the people. He was in a time of great tribulation himself as the people were weak. The people were murmuring and complaining. The people were turning back to Egypt in their hearts. The nation was young and vulnerable as they made their way through the wilderness there. And then Amalek, the sworn enemy of Israel and the sworn enemy of God, came upon that weakened, vulnerable nation and sought to snuff them out, to destroy them altogether. And the people went down with Joshua into the valley and fought against Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Caleb went up onto the hill and they began to intercede and to pray. And when Moses' hands were raised, the army of Israel prevailed. And ultimately they came through and they won that battle. And at the end of that tribulation, Moses looked up and he said, Jehovah Nisi, the Lord is my banner. The Lord is the one who fights for me. And in the middle of the tribulation, there was revelation. Something of who God was. Something that previously they had never understood, never seen, never tasted of who he was, his character, his nature was revealed to them there as God, their defense, their fighter, in the, uh, the valley of that tribulation that they were in. Jeremiah in prison, the tribulation of his prison, when the people were accusing him of wickedness, he met with God and he called out Jehovah to Sidkenu, the Lord is my righteousness. He was revealed to Jeremiah while he was in tribulation, while he was in prison, as the one who justifies the ungodly. But it was in the time of tribulation that Jeremiah saw something that he, even a prophet, had never seen before of who God was. It was the Apostle John. In the book of Revelation, chapter 1, he tells us himself, chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, he says, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation, was in the kingdom of uh, and pa- patience, I'm sorry, in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. He was in tribulation because of his testimony towards the Lord. He says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. And do you know what John received in his tribulation? The revelation. The book of revelation. The great revelation. But when did it come? He said, I was in tribulation. So tribulation, that thing that we fear, that thing that we avoid like the plague, it's in the middle of tribulation that we discover something of who God was that previously, maybe it was words on the page, but it was never ours. We never owned it personally. But it's in tribulation. God meets us there. And the love of Christ is revealed to us. And we find Him in it. We are more than conquerors. What does distress produce in my life? What does the squeeze produce? Because this squeeze feels like it's killing me. Hey, listen, you're not alone. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, the great apostle Paul himself says these words. Verse 8. He says, For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure, above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. Sounds like the squeeze, doesn't it? Pressed above measure, above our own strength, we despaired even of life. 
But we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God, which raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and doth deliver in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. The distressing, the squeeze, it does something in our lives. What is it? Well, what does the distress, what is the pressing that Paul is talking about produce? Hey, when they made the anointing oil in the Old Testament, that which would be poured upon the priests as they'd be elevated into their place of ministry, their place of service. The anointing oil that was poured upon the kings as they would be lifted up and placed into that, that place, a symbol of the anointing of God, the presence of the Spirit in their life. Do you know how they made that oil? They would take the spices and they would crush them. They would distress them. There would be such a pressure placed upon those spices that the oils, the preciousness, the aroma would be extracted out. And it would be with those spiced, those crushed spices that that anointing oil would then be, you know, crafted and then poured upon the people as they would be anointed. The same thing is true for you and I. As we're crushed, as the squeeze wraps around us and we feel that, we say, God, why are you doing this to me? Why does it feel like you're killing me, that the sentence of death is within me? God would look and he'd say, hey, pressure extracts preciousness. There's something that's happening in your soul. There's a breaking, there's a sweetening, there's an aroma that's being extracted from you as my pressure is placed upon your life. Pressure brings out preciousness. You ever been around someone that's really been through the squeeze? There's something about them that just being in their presence, it's sweet. There's a humility. There's a brokenness. There's a Christ-likeness. There's a presence of God within them, an anointing that's on them. Because the pressure does something. It makes us more than conquerors through Him that loved us. What does persecution bring? Persecution brings liberation. You know the story. You learned it in Sunday school. It was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They stood up for the Lord when everybody else was told to bow down to an idol. And the result of that is that they were bound and they were thrown into a burning fiery furnace. Only they weren't harmed. They went through it. They were ridiculed. They were tortured. They were embarrassed. But once they were thrown into that fire, they were free. The ropes that bound them were loosed. And Nebuchadnezzar looked into the furnace and he said that I threw three men in, but I see four. And the fourth looks like unto the Son of Man. They met with Jesus in the middle of their persecution, and they were liberated. They were set free from the thing that bound them. And then they were elevated. They became more than conquerors through Him that loved them. Persecution produces liberation. Famine? Well, what does famine produce in my life? Why do I have to go through this need? This time where I have to trust God for my next meal or for the next bill to be paid? Because famine produces faith. What do you think it was like for Elijah? God spoke to the prophet Elijah and he said, Elijah, I want you to pray that there won't be rain for three and a half years. Well, in those days, in that society, no rain meant what? No food. And Elijah maybe thought, well, okay, I'll do what God's telling me to do. And so he prays and he thinks, well, God's going to, obviously he's going to let rain fall where I live. You know, I'm his prophet. But Elijah went through the same exact famine that everybody else did. It got so bad during some of those famines in those times that people were eating their own children. And yet, in the middle of the famine that Elijah had to go through with the nation, with everybody else, God fed him faithfully. 
whether it was through the presence of an unclean raven that would come and drop bread in his lap every night, or whether it was a widowed woman in Zarephath, a Gentile that would be a no-no for any Jewish man, nevertheless a prophet, or whether it would be an angel that would set a plate for Elijah there as he sat upon the mountain waiting upon God, an angel that would bring him a goblet, a cup full of water and say, eat and drink. God fed the man Elijah. And it produces faith within the life. When you go through famine and you see the presence of God, the things working in your life. I was speaking with a woman after Sunday service. A woman I've known for a long time. And she's gone through a lot of struggles. She's gone through all of the things that we have listed here so far. And the ones that we haven't gotten to yet. And it seems like one thing after the next for this woman. But she looked at me with a sparkle in her eye. A beaming smile upon her face. And she said, do you know that my husband losing his job is the best thing that's ever happened to me? It wasn't because her husband's like this great man, you know. But her point was that through this famine, through this persecution, through this peril, through this distressing, through this squeeze, Christ has been revealed to me in such a real and living way. His love has welled up within me in such a powerful flavor that I wouldn't trade it for anything. More than conquerors through him that loved us. Nakedness. Nakedness frees you from the opinions of others. That can be a horrible trap, can't it? Do you ever feel like you're living your life in somebody else's head? Well, if I do this, they're going to think this. If I wear this, they're going to say this. If I do this, they're going to say that. And and you constantly have this inside of you, this living of your life in someone else, caring and, and placing emphasis upon the opinions and feelings of others. But once you go through this nakedness thing, you know, the shame, this embarrassment, you don't care anymore. One of the best things, I I loved it. When we first started coming to church here, uh, Bobby and Liz came over to our house for dinner. And my wife makes these incredible lasagnas. She usually does the side-by-side. She hasn't done it in a while. She's here. I'm throwing that out. You know, it's... <laughs> but she usually does this, uh, this, uh, this meat one and this vegetarian one. And I know when you hear vegetarian, if you're like me, you think, give me the meat. You know, but the veg, it's out of this world. It's, it's incredible. So we, we make these two lasagnas. She makes the two lasagnas. Bobby and Liz come over. And I'm like, okay, pastor's coming over. You guys know the feeling. You know, you don't really know what to expect. You know, you don't want to, like, make it look like you're thinking that, but you're kind of like, you know, what, what kind of play, you know, how should we do this? So I'm thinking, well, he's going to come. He's going to be dressed a certain way, you know, all this stuff. Bobby comes in. If you know Bobby, he comes in. He grabs the plate. He had, he had like, one whole lasagna on the plate, <laughs> you know, of the two. And he sat down without any table manners whatsoever, and he was shoveling mouthfuls, you know, bucket loads of food in per bite and let me tell you something most people maybe would be like can you believe what he's i was like praise god (laughs) because i don't have any table manners at all you know and i you know so i was just like this is good i don't have to think about how i'm holding my fork i don't have to think about putting a napkin on my lap i don't think about wiping my mouth i don't think about any of that ah and the pressure was just off you know A man who understands this whole concept of nakedness freeing you from the opinions of others. Who cares? Who cares? Who cares what they think? Who cares what they say? It doesn't matter. What does God think? What does God say? That's what matters. 
See, now, I know that sounds easy, but, you know, we know what it's like when we have parents that we want to still please, even in our older years. And they don't maybe approve of the things that we do raising our kids as Christians or the way we run our houses. It can, it can eat at you. It can do something in you. But see, God has a way of setting us free from that. We don't care. More than conquerors through him that loved us. Peril produces confidence. Like Paul, again, in that verse we read in 2 Corinthians, he said, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. We thought we were literally going to die, that this was the end. We're perishing. It's over. God's through with us. But he said, listen, God not only delivered us in past times, but we trust that he's going to deliver us this time. And we also believe that we're going to be in this situation someday again, and that he's going to deliver us then too. He was in a real dangerous situation. You read about where he was shipwrecked and lost at sea. And all these things, sickness and, uh, you know, stripes and persecutions and beatings, everything that went on in his life. And yet it produced in him a confidence that God was with him. That no matter what I go through, he's with me. He'll never leave me. He'll never forsake me. He's working all things together for good. And I can believe him. I can trust him because his love is working within my life. More than conquerors through him that loved us. And the sword, that's the easiest one of all. Why? Because for the Christian, death equals life. Paul himself said, I would so much rather die and be with Christ than live and be with you. (laughs) He said that to the Philippians. Sometimes dying is easier, but for the Christian, if you really think about it, for the world, death is the thing that's greatly feared. The writer of Hebrews says that man is subject to bondage his whole life because of the single thing, the fear of death. And yet for the Christian, death for us is the door into eternity. It's the thing that we, in in some sense within us, we long for the greatest because we want to depart and be with Christ. We long for the kingdom that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Where there's light, life. It's eternal. There's no night. There's no goodbye. There's no darkness. So the sword equals life. We're more than conquerors through him that loved us. And then he goes on, verse 38, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, angels, principalities, nor powers, things present, things to come, height, depth, any other creature, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from this great love. Nothing can separate. Though you feel the abandonment of your parents in your youth, or... Just the realization that their love is not perfect and unconditional. Jesus said in John chapter 7, verse 37, he said these words. It says, in that last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and he cried, saying, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. I'm going to read that again. Just the red letters. If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Listen. Do you remember at the beginning of the study, I spoke to you about this great vacuum that man has within him? And that Adam, that first man, had that vacuum, but side by side it, he had the well. 
And the well that was given to him by God, the well that was God and the love of God within his life could produce enough to satisfy the longing that he had. And the claim that Christ is making to the people here and to us here tonight in John 37 is that if we would call upon him, that if we would come unto him, that out of our innermost being, out of our belly would gush torrents of living water, that in Christ there's enough. That he is sufficient to satisfy the thing that we need the most. That he is the one that will fill us and give to us the unconditional love that no one else can give. The most faithful spouse on planet earth cannot love you with the unconditional and perfect love that Christ promises to love you with. The most faithful mother and father that you could ever grow up under cannot. Because they haven't been given the capacity. They cannot give to you that which you truly and deeply need. But Jesus says, if you come unto me, the love that you'll experience... The well that will satisfy your soul will be so real and so great. You'll find the thing that you've been searching for. The greatest need that you have. That great hole that's within you will be filled up, plugged up, satisfied. And you'll never find yourself looking again. It's a love so pure, so powerful, so real that you can give yourself to it. You can trust him that if you let that love penetrate and infiltrate your heart. That if you let his love permeate and fill you to its fullest, you have to be vulnerable. You have to give yourself to him. You have to trust that whatever happens, wherever your path leads, wherever he takes you in the perfect will of his perfect love, that he's not going to abandon you. You'll have to trust him. But that love will never leave you. It's unconditional. It's steadfast. You can give yourself to it. You can walk out of here tonight. You can leave this building tonight changed. Even though maybe you've been saved for a long time and you've never tasted, you've never been satisfied, you've never given yourself completely to Him. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, 10, 18 says that perfect love casts out fear. That you can leave here tonight and never fear again if you're going to lose your job. Not because you're not going to, but because He takes away the fear of it. It doesn't matter. Remember, being in love, mystified, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. I'm filled with His love. I know that He's with me. I know that He's for me. I don't have to worry about it. Fear that I'll lose my house. Fear that I'll, I'll lose my spouse, that they're going to leave. Fear that my future is dark. Fear that there's a sickness that's coming, that it's just around the corner, that any time now my physical frame is going to start to f- become frail and, and fickle. I'm going to die. The Bible says, cast your cares on Him because He cares for you. You say, well, can you guarantee me that none of these things that you just said are going to happen? No. In fact, I can almost guarantee that some of them probably will. But here's what I can guarantee. I can absolutely guarantee you this. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your path. That if you trust in Him with all your heart, that if you allow your heart to be completely placed into His hand and not lean upon your own strategies. The Bible says that He will make your path straight. He will lead you in the right way. And that you'll be glad that you gave Him the ability to do it. Psalm 37 verses 18 and 19 says that the Lord knoweth the days of the upright and their inheritance shall be forever. They shall not be ashamed in the evil time and in the days of famine they shall be satisfied. That's a promise. 
the love of Christ making you more than a conqueror. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 says, All things work together for good to those that love God, that are called according to His purpose. The love of God is so powerful, so true, so real. Maybe you're here tonight and you've never come to Christ. You've never given your life to Him. The musicians can come. I can tell you that tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, that those things are inevitable. That every person, the Bible says that the rain falls on the just and the unjust. The Bible says that the sun shines on the just and the unjust. Rain and sun can both be good and bad. Too much of either one will kill you. And the Bible says that we're all subjected to the same thing. All of those things are inevitable. But let me tell you this. I would never want to go through those things without Christ in my life. I don't want to go through those things without Christ. I want the knowledge that He's above all things and that He's in control of all things and that I'm in His hand. He promises to meet the greatest need that I have to fill me with His love. You can come to Christ tonight. The invitation is open for you to receive that love. For your heart to be filled with the only thing that can truly satisfy and truly fill it. He extends that invitation to you. Freely, He gives. It's the gift of God. He hung on a cross. Christ that died, yea, that rose again. Is seated at the right hand of the Father. He ever lives to make intercession for us. Praying for us. Longing to see that we'll come to Him. That we'll find our life in Him. I love this chapter. Romans chapter 8. It starts with no condemnation. It ends with no separation. And in between, all things are working together for good. It's what God's called us into. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you so much for this testimony of your love. Lord, this glorious truth that we stand upon. Lord, that you love us with an everlasting and unconditional love. That you stretch out your arms to us. That you're calling us home. That you want to be that which fills us. And so Lord, I pray for each person here. I pray that each person here would be so filled with that love. Lord, that you would right now just fill them, overflow them. Let them feel your presence. Let your spirit descend upon them. I pray that even now, Lord, all their fears would be coming out. Lord, that the anxiety of the situations of life would just be calming. That their minds would become clear that their hearts would become whole and filled. I pray for anyone here that's become weakened by the abuse of lost love in their lives. I pray for any here that have tasted the rejection, the abandonment, the hurt and loss. That, Lord, you'd heal their heart. That right now, Lord, you would speak to them personally. That you'd whisper in their ear and say, I love you. I long to look into your face. Give us the grace, Lord, to surrender. To give ourselves into your hand. To receive that which you offer. That we might live life to its fullest. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.